0: Welcome to the Grow With It podcast, a podcast about operationalizing your data to grow faster. My name's Michael Sharkey, co-founder and CEO of Auto, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jesus Requena, VP of Growth at Figma. Our goal is that you leave each episode with practical and actionable insights from leading experts in data and growth. Let's get into this week's episode.
1: Welcome, Sean. Nice seeing you again.
2: Yeah, great seeing you.
1: You know, our father, you joined the VC world? Yeah.
2: I joined the VC world in February and then the market tanked in what, May, and no one wanted to invest anymore. <laughs> um, no, but I think it was a good time. It was a good time to have to have Liam 7 or 8 weeks ago, so cuz things have just been pretty quiet in the VC world, I think, but in general it's been great. Craft is craft is awesome. The people there are are really incredible. Some of the portfolio companies are performing really well and just like cool people. I'd say, I think that's like, people say that a lot, but we have had a number of like craft events and networking events with our founders. And I just think there's like a lot, there's like a lot of like really, Inspiring people, honestly, in the portfolio. So it's been really cool. Like I've made one investment that hasn't been announced yet. Actually, an Australian company. So down in, in the Orto neck of the woods of the world. But yeah, things have been great so far, and um, it's just an interesting time. It's like it's 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 interesting. It, I'm really looking forward to seeing like how the market kind of turns around from a venture perspective, and like how quickly we get back into the cycle of things of every deal being super competitive. I I wonder if it's years or or months. I'd, who knows?
1: We don't know what is coming. That's for sure. Yeah. But um, Sean and I had a good short fun of Figma and he did a good run at Figma. So Sean, there's going to be a lot of things that we're going to talk today but Probably that, that run and your learning is there.
0: Yeah. I'm
1: looking forward to it.
0: So do you want to start off? Like, I think one of my observations when I first met you was like, I think your role at Figma was something around like operations or growth. Yeah. I don't know exactly what it was, but I uh, know finance and business
2: operations. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I joined Praveer Melwani hired me. I was his first hire at Figma. He's now the CFO. So he went from IC kind of first business hire there, uh, first finance hire to CFO. And when he hired me, he was, I don't know, he's, he's, he's changed so many titles as he's gone up the ranks, but it was head of biz ops and finance, I think. So his, his kind of mandate when I joined, was it was a very cool position to be he was like, I just have a bunch of stuff to work on. Like whether they be like growth related projects, um, whether they be like super finance related, whether they'd be accounting related. And I hated accounting and I wasn't good at it. And he knew he had to go hire an accountant. So my role for a long time there was like kind of strategic finance on this fp focus. So managed our corporate operating model, like managed a lot and like, took a lot of the stuff that air that premier had built, and then kind of, you know, put my own spin on it and, and manage it on a day to day basis, manage our entire ARR reporting. And it was like a lot of like weekly reporting to executives monthly reporting to the board of how the business was doing. At that time, there was only a self service. There wasn't even a sales team yet. When I joined, so, you know, we'd hired, hired Kyle Paris, the head of sales shortly after. So I just got to know the business really well. And then that was like, you know, 75% of the, the job that the other 25%, it was very startupy. raise my hand, just do a bunch of random shit. So it'd be like working with the growth team. We had an awesome head of growth who was working on like different iterations in the funnel to improve self-serve. It was like building out the sales ops team or really the sales ops function the first time, data integrations in and out of Salesforce, like all the boring stuff. But like what it the cool part about it was like, there was kind of like no piece of our go-to-market that I didn't a lot, a lot of it had nothing to do with me, but I didn't like touch in some way, shape or form. Like I didn't like get kind of like into the weeds with and understand what was working and what wasn't. Um, so it was really cool to watch the business go from, you know, 40 people, whatever it was when I joined to 500 when I left and, you know, under a million in ARR to where it is now, which I don't think is public, but you know, in the hundreds of millions, so it was a really cool experience. It was just able to like learn a bunch of different stuff. I don't know how much like I actually... I like to be humble. Like well say I and we a lot. Like there's some great kick-ass people at Figma that like taught me a lot. Like, and it was kind of just along for the ride <laughs> type of thing at points, but it was cool. What was the business
0: like? Like you talk about the uh, predominantly self-serve and like analyzing all that data. What were you looking for in that data to report? Like what were the key drivers like what like... What were you thinking about when it came to that business?
2: Yeah, it started to just try... What it started with, and Previra had done a great job even in the early months of the paid launch. So I joined like 10 or 11 months after they'd launched paid in July 2017. So I joined you know, in the middle part of the year in 2018. And at that point, it was like, let's be as accurate as we possibly can with a prediction model effectively, right? Like with predicting each step of this funnel. So you know, starting all the way at traffic to the website, getting to signups, seeing how that moves to a team create, because I mean, a little nuance with Figma is they monetize teams, not really individual users. Seeing how those teams convert to paid over time. So these kind of like massive waterfalls, then how they, if they they retain, how they grow, and then if they churn. So it was basically like each one of these steps was a tab in this Excel model that we would dump a bunch of data in from um, just from writing SQL queries. And we would just iterate on this thing constantly to try to be as accurately, accurate as we could in, in the growth of the business to understand where like the main drivers were. And we used a lot of that to educate the growth team on the self-serve side. I mean, this guy had Mike Coughlin, who's head of growth. There's brilliant. He just, he had, he was not short of ideas, like a million different ideas of ways to optimize the funnel, but it'd be a lot of fun learnings between the finance team, strategic finance team, biz ops team and the growth team being like, Hey, this is where we think there's like low hanging fruit here in this part of the funnel. And like from a conversion standpoint, like he went and launched a cart abandon or a a re-engineered cart that like massively improved conversion. So it was just trying to stay ahead, of, and the business was changing like quite often, or the product was, I should say. We were like launching new features. We, you know, launched the new tier in organizations. We were moving paywalls around. So like something would change, and you'd have to like stay on top of that in the model, would just take a lot of like kind of the purpose of the podcast, a lot of looking at data. And we were lucky to have you know millions of rows of data because we had so many users at Figma even in the early days. It just took you know a lot of dissecting how certain changes might have influenced different parts of the funnel like that. So that was like the main thing that we were looking at. And we were were looking at it every day. And there was just like, there's a lot, there's a lot of drivers and levers in a self-serve business as opposed to a sales one, I think a little bit. It's like, hey, are you hitting quota or not? And there's a lot that goes into that, I understand. But self-serve, it's like, which part of this massive funnel is working and which not and what what is not. And it was just a lot of work trying to like maintain understanding of that funnel, I think.
1: I'm gonna ask Sean, now I'm a fig man. And I wonder at what point, Sean, do you start automating that data into a centralized CDP or something? Because there's still things at Figma that we do pretty SQL query based and then analyze outside of that. But how did that data transform over time?
2: Well, I'm trying to think of like the best way. The, the interesting, to get super specific with Figma is like, I've, I don't have a, a great deal of reference because Figma is the first like true SaaS startup I worked at, but very SQL heavy culture. Like everything was done in SQL and talked directly to, at the time we were on Redshift and AWS now, the, the business is on Snowflake. But if you wanted to create a new table or a new view of data or whatever, like you needed that done in SQL and it would run in the ETL process every night. And then it would like kind of, it would be automated from that point forward. You know what I mean? Like I created a new, ta- like at one point when we were looking at sales, we wanted to look at how, how sales organizations, I'd say orgs was the tier how did it look like they were going to upgrade, right? When they hit their three, they hit quarterly upgrades. And we could pull all that data from a combination of Salesforce and in the product. And basically, I just like pulled it, made a new table, gave it to the data team. And then it would run. And then from there, it would run every night. So I did like do the fr- original engineering, I say with air quotations in SQL. So up until when I left, still maintain. Like I remember at one point, we, we did a lot of work to onboard ourselves to Amplitude. And we churned off of it in like a quarter we must've been trialed. I don't know if we ever actually paid for it. We turned off of it so fast. And I was like, kind of shocking. I think might've hurt it. That culture might've hurt Figma a little bit, maybe not, but I just think like sales folks, even when I left, or especially in the early days, like if they wanted some unique insight into an account, like they'd have to like kind of beg someone a new sequel to go figure it out. So I don't know if that exactly answers your question. It's just like, That was the culture that like data explanation was built around was like, could you manipulate the data you needed in SQL straight from a, you know, straight from Redshift and then like for the finance team, we dropped that into Excel a lot. But that's why the data, the data team kind of like rules all that Figma because they have the power. (laughs) I, I don't know. If that that entered, thing, does that, that answer your question a little bit? I, I think So I, I think
1: oh, it's just a conversation more than. Yeah, anything yeah, else. Yeah. But one thing that I noticed that other startups maybe take more time to do is to centralize that data. Every single thing into one Redshift or something. Mm-hmm. I think the the Figma did that very well at the beginning. So they put every single thing into a Redshift from yeah. very early. Oh days. yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. So the data team is really good at. We just hit these facts tables, which it's kind of. Crazy to me that I, they were so common knowledge and used so often at Figma that I kind of thought like this is just a thing that exists that like bottoms up SaaS companies they have these facts they were so they have like user facts, domain facts, team facts, and it was basically. They would just coalesce all these different data points and tell you everything you could possibly need to know about a user, a team, a domain or whatever it may be. And they're updating and improving it constantly. So it wasn't when I say this data sitting in the warehouse, it wasn't raw. It was like the same thing I just said, like the data team would be like, they'd come up with a SQL query that would generate this centralized table of every user when they signed up, you know, what their job title was, how active they've been, how active they've been in individual features, how many teams they're on, like all of these facts that was just like, if you wanted to run an experiment, if you wanted to figure something out of where low hanging fruit might be, like I was saying earlier on the finance team, like the tools were at your dispense there. You just needed to know how to SQL, to write SQL, to query into it. But like, it was all very well organized from, from when I got there and, and it was always improved upon, which was cool. And that's not like common knowledge, like, or that's not something super calm, common is what I'm learning is startups would be like, yeah, we have kind of like this raw table dump from segment into our uh, data warehouse. And they don't kind of like organize, they don't take the time to organize the data. And I think that probably hurts them in the long run. But it's easier said than done, because they're probably doing a million things at once when you know, you're a series A series seed startup, but it yeah, hasn't I think been Figma's, as common
0: as I thought. Figma's <laughs> gotta be unique in that, like in that sense, or at least that stage you saw where everything was sitting in something like Redshift. I like Yeah. I work with these businesses all the time, and like it's very rare you see structure early on. <laughs> it's normally just like, you know, like there's stuff everywhere. But I mean, like there's a nice, there's always a nice footprint across like all the apps they're using. Like, you know, you, you can get data out of segments, try it wherever you need to to recompile it so it's not the end of the world but totally it definitely does help having the historical structure from early on
2: figma's story i feel like is so unique in that, that the time that it had like the patience that it must have taken from investors like i don't i don't know the exact timeline i think it's well documented in like twitter threads and and articles and stuff but like they founded the business. It was like five years until they launched paid. And when they launched paid, they already have like hundreds of thousands of users on the beta, like, and they took the time to build. So they had like 35 engineers or something. When I joined, they had 30, you know, engineering product design or something like that. And they had myself and Premiere, they had the growth individuals, which were kind of product D, and they had like a handful of marketing. So like, There was just so much investment on the infrastructure of the tool. And even on the data side, like they had done a lot of great work on the data side with these facts tables and these different, these different ways to arm the business or to just know what was going on. And a lot of companies, you know, they raise a series seat and they go and they launch paid. And like they're from that point, you know, they're after it, they're trying to get as quickly as they can to the a and their time is spent on improving the product to improve customer acquisition or growing that sales team right away. You know what I mean? Like they don't they aren't afforded that level of patience that it felt like Figma had. And I don't think that was easy on Dylan and the team, but it it is something that Fig it's like a unique advantage in a way that Figma had that I feel like you don't see a lot anymore.
1: I agree. I agree. And I think that infrastructure um helped the rapid scale right after the launch. Um mm-hmm. I think that's really accurate. A lot of companies trying to Launch the product and they don't have the data infrastructure to measure anything. So they're building all of that while they're launching and yeah, then they so get uh, all the things
2: wrong. Yeah. What's the saying? Like you're putting the, you're like installing the landing gear while the plane's flying or something like that. I don't know. So they're installing the wings while it's flying or something <laughs> like Figma kind of, I mean, it was always you noticed tough, something but.
1: really, you noticed something really important, which is because Figma had the data and those sheets, like in those tables, it was really easy to access what it was working and what is not. So Mm-hmm. The business could optimize at a really rapid speed where there's a lot of companies that they're already in the hundreds of millions of dollars and they have no clue where to optimize and they go blind everywhere. There's like, so yeah. I, think, I think that's a lesson learned for every single startup out there. Get your data right from the get-go.
2: Right? I don't know if you guys noticed this too. One thing that blows my mind, and I, again, I'm not an engineer. I have never built product. So I don't, I might be saying this, it, it might come off as easier, than, easier said than done that like tracking is, doesn't exist in your tool from day one. Like when, like when I go to talk to a founder, it's like, how's your engagement at this part of the phone? It's like, well, we don't have like segment track. Like I understand like segment can be a pain in the ass to, to get up and running within your tool or whatever tracking you're using. But like the fact that you can't tell me, like, wouldn't you want to know as a founder, as an operator, like people are even clicking on this button or not. And like, you can't, a lot of people can't tell you that at like C and series A. So like anything you ever want tracked at Figma, if it wasn't, you could say something and they throw a tag on it. So I, that infrastructure was like all built when I got there too. And it's just like, it It kind of blows my mind. It's like, how do you optimize anything? If you don't truly know what the users are doing in the tool?
0: Yeah. It does seem like something that happens a lot later on, like, I don't think segments terribly hard to set up. It's just like a lot of people don't do anything with the data. It must take on. some
2: level of discipline that I don't appreciate to like institute tracking in your SaaS tool. But for whatever reason, it's like a lot of times it's like no, we haven't done it yet. It's like feels like something to be way harder. To if, like you get, if you get if you get
0: motivated later. people like that are trying to solve the problem, you can get it done like you know super quick. I yeah. feel <laughs> real, real quick in like <laughs> 10 minutes. I think that's the problem though. When people start building products, it's like they're so focused on solving a, a problem solution and then they sort of put their head up after a certain period of time. They're like, shit, what's anyone even doing? Like, yeah. <laughs> like who says, like they get to a point and it just doesn't really matter because they're making money or like it's working and they're like, they're not looking at that granular optimization. But personally, having done it for a while now, I don't know how I could start something and not have a dashboard day one that's like, Here's how many people signed up, logged in, I retained. Here's the drop off on my like, you know, paid page, like all that kind of stuff. I'd throw yeah. tracking at it day one, but I, I guess that's maybe just experience. But yeah, I think people are still getting better at it. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious. We had a great conversation last time about like getting that data to sales. Like earlier, you mentioned how if you knew SQL, you could get access to that data, and that was you know. Great. But where Mm -hmm. were the challenges with that? Like, as the organization grew and scaled, like you would have seen enormous scale. Like, how did you then go on to solve the problems of like exposing that data to others?
2: Yeah, it's true. I mean, that's like one thing we always had to think about was what tools, what tool on the go to market side, what tools are everyone using and how are we piping data in and out of that? And Jesus, you're still dealing with this now as you're getting, you know, new tools installed. And if you can hear, uh, my newborn crying i apologize through the door but the, there was a few like table stakes items we we had built everything when we when the sales team started we built the entire like account ownership structure on domains so it was like every time a user signed up like if a user signed up for the first time from orto.com like that would create a new line item in this domain facts table And it would tell you everything you needed to know possibly about that domain, how many paid teams, how many dollars were spent, when the first sign up was, how active, like, you know, the Dow Mal, like stuff, every kind of like thing you'd want to know of like, is this a high signal domain for us? And we found a way through kind of like pushing and pulling and using Salesforce consultants to pipe all that data into Salesforce, to run jobs in Salesforce through, you know, custom Apex code that would create new accounts. If a new domain existed, it would pipe all that data into custom fields we created in Salesforce of those accounts. And that way as a rep, you'd come in and you'd say, okay, I own 25 accounts or whatever. And like I can filter this by like which ones have the most paid usage on our pro tier. Right. And that would be like in the early days, that's kind of all you needed for like a kick-ass, you know, signal that you were, you know, up. like you were a good target for enterprise if you wanted to do outbound. The glory of Figma a little bit which is like not a it's not like oh like it's not some secret that you can like install is that demand was so high that there was a lot of there was just inbound high tar- high inbound leads. It was like someone would go in, they click contact sales and they'd be like ready to buy Figma. Now, that's not to discount all the incredible work that the team did at Figma. But I felt like we always did a good job of arming them with all the data. So it wasn't like, hey, you know, I get this inbound lead. Now I got to go look up through three different systems, how many signups they have, how much paid, like everything was in Salesforce so that they would be able to like respond to that lead, hop on a call, everything they needed. As accounts got larger and larger, or I, sh- I should say as target accounts got larger and larger try to close, you know, and you had to deal with different like security types things and longer sales processes on the target side, on the client side. You know, it would take one-off requests from a user, like, or from a sales rep being like, I want to know how many duplicate users there are, how many users are in Europe versus North American discount. And like that type of stuff, like it was kind of, it's impossible to solve for everything in Salesforce. But we tried to educate sales reps as much as possible with anything, any piece of data that we could find relevant. And it was also the data that like set the whole sales reps books up in the first place. So it was just like, everything was like built so that like, Hey, It took a lot of work on the front end, but this is getting piped into Salesforce every day. And like everything that is needed is getting piped in once. And then all these jobs are running and like allowing the sales team to kind of do their job. And it was a lot of iteration back and forth with the sales team there of like, hey, this is what we really care about. This is what, you know, customers are responding to. versus not like, I don't care about this data versus I do that. I care about that data. So there's definitely pitfalls to it and which I mostly relate to Salesforce, uh, which you can do. A series of podcasts on Salesforce complaints, but that I'm sure a lot of people would love to listen to. But it'd um, <laughs> be pretty boring. But um, but yeah, that was like that was like the idea of like how do we just batch kind of this stuff into Salesforce and automate as much as possible and educate sales reps with everything they could need to kind of do their jobs on a day to day basis.
0: Yeah, it just um, sounds I'm like the look- overarching theme is just efficiency, like through Salesforce access to data, like. Putting it at their fingertips is so critical to just the operation of the business.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, it was efficiency, and it was also like no, I think that's the best word for it. Like, I, I, it it just seemed like the logical thing to do to, as well. It was like why have the why come like create random account books off of like lists of either domains that are using Figma or like target accounts when like we can just let the data do that. We can let the data with like the right logic create the own their own books of accounts. Filter them the way that they need, and educate them on what they would need to, you know, effectively like fill out an order form and get and get the customer closed. And that just led to really slow, uh, really quick sales cycles, which you know help accelerate the growth of the business. And,
1: and I think this goes back into what we said before. Like, Figma was able to do that because you had the right data infrastructure to mm. then put in sales. How many companies do I know that they want to do some product telemetry to sales and they don't have any? product telemetry structure and no a way they can put it in Salesforce. They might have Salesforce, but they cannot do that.
2: Um, yeah, it's true. I mean, it's true. It's a, it's a multi-step process and you have to start with organizing your data from the firmographic stuff, like, you know, the user email and when they signed up and then the telemetry stuff. And then, you know, we use Clearbit to augment it, just like get all that organized. Then you got to get in into your destination, you know, most likely Salesforce or, you know, sometimes like tools like Marketo and SendGrid and all those other jazz that we used. And then you got to like figure out how it's like how it's operating once it gets in there. And then we also made sure data was coming back from Salesforce so that everything the source of truth was always, you know, the warehouse. So it's a multi-step process and your data is useless in Salesforce if you don't organize it on the front end the right way.
1: Exactly. Was that data ever used in the early days in marketing or growth to upgrade users?
2: Yeah, for sure. I was kind of alluding to that earlier. The growth team I mean, well, the the data scientists, there was only, you know, data analyst scientists, I don't know, I guess they were like both. I don't really even know the difference between the two. They were, everyone at Figma in the early days could kind of do both. They were both designing how the data was structured as well as like running point on experiments. They, they were, you know, the ones creating these facts tables. So they were just such like kind of sequel whiz and, you know, stats nerds. I like to call Wendy sometimes but um they were just so good at design at at understanding like what's working what's not in the funnel that they would use that data to educate like the different projects on the growth team and like that like I said yeah experiments whether it be massive experiments like the one they ran shortly before you joined or I think I think shortly before you joined the the re-engineering of the free tier which took a year to do and you know led to substantial conversion increase in the business or smaller projects like cart abandonment stuff or, yeah, like cart reengineering, or, you know, bumping up team creation like 5% because, you know, we monetize teams, so you couldn't monetize the user unless they created a team. So it was kind of like small to big, but they would use kind of all this data in different ways.
1: I mean, we're still doing that, but I think the point I'm trying to bring is, Unless you have the data structure to do so, you can't even run strong hypotheses on what experiments you want to do as a business. So I think it fed everything, Mike. It's really amazing how from the early days, the data was feeding sales. It was feeding like great experiments on the product. It was feeding great modeling for the forecast of the revenue. So that's something that I I would take. If I have any startup out there is starting right now, I would put massive investment into that. Just make sure that you track everything. You have good data infrastructure.
2: By the way, it was also powering our fundraising because the other thing that blows my mind is just if you ask 10 different, not even startups, like high-flying unicorns, how they report ARR, you get 10 different answers. You might get 12 because like one company reports it in two different ways. So like... The way that we made sure that we were piping all our Stripe data into the warehouse, we were augmenting that with some of that firmographic stuff with like stuff like making sure they had, it had the right Salesforce ID, like all this stuff. And it was basically a massive 400 line SQL query that Prevere wrote before I joined, that is still maintained as the source of truth for Figma's ARR, right? And that is ultimately what's reported to investors. And that's ultimately what we raised on, right? I just think it's interesting how like even that we struck we we've striped down to the rawest form and then like re-engineered it in a way that we were really comfortable with, as opposed to like just logging on and like, hey, what is Stripe timing me my ARR is? Well, then I have five customers outside of Stripe and then I have this discount code that I shouldn't be counting, but Stripe is counting. Like, you know what I mean? Like even down to the dollars and cents of the business that was reported and or it was like entrusted in kind of the raw data and in SQL.
0: Yeah, like so do you when you look at startups today, or or you're looking at them? Do you take this into consideration? Like how organized that their data is so they can exploit it in the fundraising process? Because it feels to me like there's a direct connection. If this stuff is in place or organized, you can start to figure out like, hey, if we give you X dollars, this will probably happen.
2: So I took it for granted. Because again, like I mentioned, like I didn't, I hadn't worked for another SaaS company with, you know, the other startup I worked for, it didn't have millions of users and, and customers to like data you could track in a spreadsheet with like a CSV upload. And it was just so, it felt so shocking And by the way, like everything feels like a kind of a shit show when you're in it, right? Like this, this, these processes we're talking about figure would break all the time. Clancy, one of the data scientists there, like him and I like way late, like what's breaking, what's not. And not just me, I can only imagine stuff on like the product infrastructure data side that I didn't even, you know, I can't even begin to imagine. So this stuff's hard. I knew it was hard, but I think it's so hard that some companies don't even start. And like, there's one company I won't say the the name of that I'm, I still believe is going to be a unicorn company is going to crush it, but they have a very similar story to Figma. You know, millions of users have been a self-serve tool for a long time, raising capital for the first time, finally going to build out a sales team. And I couldn't sell the business internally at Craft because they didn't have their data organized enough to be like, these are the 100 counts we're going to go after. And this is how much they're using the product. And this is how much they're spending on self serve today. And like, I understood it because part of it was like, hey, we're going to raise capital and we're going to go hire the people that can like put this all together. But it's like, how can we kind of like trust that that's going to happen? And like, will that be a lot of hand holding on our side? So I still think that business is going to crush it, but it was like, it was literally. I was in a position where, like, this is killing the deal because I don't have a way of like selling why this is definitely going to work to the partnership without this data. And you guys just like don't. You guys just don't have it, or you're not, or they weren't giving it. You know what I mean, or they weren't providing it for one reason or another. So yeah, I mean, it's pretty. It's, it's pretty damn important. I mean, uh, as SaaS investors that focus a lot on traction, obviously you just you know, the first foremost is like, you know, how much ARR do you have? How how much are you growing? How is it retaining? And kind of like those table stakes data pieces. But, you know, then you get into the weeds of like, how are users engaging in the tool? How are you utilizing data to educate your pipeline process and your sales process? How can we be sure that this growth is maintained? And if you can't like tell that story, it's like, really, unless you're just like crushing it on all the table stakes metrics... Like, it's like, it gets a little worrisome as an investor because it's like, well, they don't have a way to scale this figured out now. I would way rather invest after I know that they have some processes in place. But, and then you just, I mean, it's all it's all balancing act too with how much you believe in the founders and the problem space and how great the product is too. So it's not the end all be all, but if you're not able to tell part of that story, at least the craft being so metrics driven and focused as you can hear David touch on in, in the podcast, it's going to be a hurdle for us as we think about investing. I think it's a pretty classic scenario.
1: I think the understanding your customer data to tell the story of the you know how you grow, but also the second biggest people that I see is the understanding your data to understand your pricing model, like what is going to work on the projections. Those two is the most common ones that I've personally seen on startups trying to pitch and they're liking that data entirely. How do you see that shown on the data for pricing because pricing is one of the ones that is hard to get right. and
2: Yeah, I find pricing and packaging like really difficult, frankly. And I think I actually don't even have anyone specifically in my mind when I say this. When people call themselves like PMP experts. I'm like, what does that mean? Because it means such a drastically different pricing is like snowflakes to me, dude. It's like there it is such a hard problem to like you can like apply principles to it. But I think you're right. Like you have to be able to dig in. there's, there's two different scenarios, right? It's like, you're setting your price for the first time. Like that is in art, not a science. Like that is like, let me go talk to customers. What are they willing to pay? What are competitors charging? Like, that's kind of like, you got to start somewhere is my sense. Like you're kind of like hurting yourself if you're over-engineering that problem too much. But when you go change pricing, which we never did at Figma, we re-engineered the free tier, which in a way is kind of changing pricing. And that was, like I said, a year long project. When you go and change your pricing, like you better be educate, educating yourself. And you know your established business, your established product, you better be educating yourself with what has you believe that either lumping this feature into the paid tier is gonna convert, is gonna help with conversion or not, or just changing the pricing for a certain amount of users that show a certain sensitivity, how that's gonna affect your end. Like if you can't use that data then, I don't really know how else to you're trying kind to of finger to the wind a little bit. But I I don't I don't have a whole lot of experience with like changing pricing and packaging beyond kind of the free just seeing the free tier re-engineered. I think it's a really hard problem. I I'm interested in what you guys think because I, I just I people were like pricing and packaging experts. I'm like how, how could that be? It seems so different every single time it you is, approach that problem. It is tough. I know
1: every company get it right like Figma did for for the long run. A lot of companies have to play with that for a little bit until they figure it out. And to your point, if you don't have the data to do some modeling, you don't really understand the ramifications of changing pricing into some of the downstream of whatever, whether it's churn, expansion, retention. I mean, there's just so much going on in there.
2: There's Um, a really cool company um, called Stage. I think it's haystage.com. And this is not a craft company, so I'm not pushing craft product or anything. But it's basically APIs for pricing and and planning. But like abilities to very quickly like turn feature flags on and off or like basically lump things into one plan or another. And they're, they're super early. It's an upfront company. But like, I always thought that seemed pretty cool of like, because that was one of the problems with why we never really screwed with pricing and packaging that much at Figma is because on the back end on the infrastructure side, it was just like so difficult to test anything and, and iterate on it.
0: Yeah. I think price like... <laughs> It's a hard pricing is like the hardest thing in SaaS. I think it's like one, of literally the hardest. And I've gotten it wrong so many times that I, I mean, I could literally do a four-hour talk
2: about it. Um, <laughs> I mean, one thing that I think about this might, I mean, this can't be universally true. If you have a good product and you have your tiers and your pricing generally correct, are you? There's probably always optimization you can do. Are you leaving some dollars and cents on the table by not doing it? Probably, but like. Generally, your growth is dependent on if you're solving the problem in the right way, if your customers are retaining and willing to pay what you've set forth now, like, oh, I can tweak it from 15 bucks to 18 bucks and increase conversion. It's like, in the long run, you want to be a $10 billion company, like you're not going to get there by tweaking pricing. So like, I also think it's something that's a little bit over-engineered sometimes.
0: Yeah, I think in our market, like it's interesting because we get, you know, we have like a data marketing automation and analytic piece and our, our kind of USP is joining those together, right? And um, mm-hmm. so the, the real challenge is you've got users that'll kind of like exploit one of those areas. And then you've got others that, you know, are kind of using them all together. and so, like the thing we've always struggled with is, well, there's certain limitations, like the things that cost us money that we need to get more margin from. But what's worked well for us is just get people into the product, right? Start them low. I I remember Patreon, like I'm sure many people know that company. They started in our in our first product, paying us five dollars a month. Like that, no one knew who the hell they were, and that got them in, and they just started using this canvas and like they wired up automation for the whole thing and i don't know i mean like the growth in that account was insane like i, I don't know the exact number but it was more than five dollars a month at the end so that land and expand sort of charge yeah, them as yeah. they use more and and what that does to net retention over a long period of time is phenomenal like that's the the perfect scenario right but then if your only lever in pricing is some sort of tied to their growth as you add new features like there's always that beauty of having add-ons like you know and i think Figma did that with FigJam. It's like add some FigJam seats on. Like, it's really those add-ons as well can drive ACV increase rather than relying on the natural like exponential growth of quite frankly unicorns. Um, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And also, some companies have more complex feature settings. So when your SaaS is just seats and on a one-eighty cost to the seat, that's pretty straightforward. But some companies mix seats and uh, usage. Yeah, they mix them. uh, That's another
2: thing. I I get a little turned off when a company has like five paid tiers at like Series A or whatever, or Seed. It's like, what's working, what's not? Like, you're just distributing customers into too many tiers. Like, if you want to experiment, like... And I understand you're kind of given in this position where you're like, well, I have all these different, like, basically packaging opportunities with usage and users, and it can be tempting. But like, I just... I just think you like, give me three, you know, maybe if you're free, like four, but like before that, like w- more than that, like I can't understand like what's working. Yeah. What's I think not. more, like, than how three are you, how are nuts. you, how, <laughs> how are you just moving from one step to another? Are they upgrading? Are they not like, it just seems like really difficult to me. It, it seems unnecessarily complex.
0: Yeah. I, I don't like, I agree with you. I think I've always just like, gone towards the simpler the better like not that our pricing model is that simple right now but simple in a sense of like you know rather than having like annual plans day one have monthly plans like prove that these people will stick around you know like keep your billing system like less complex because there's nothing worse than changing prices when you've got like a ton of people on an annual plan yeah i agree but yeah i famously did a pricing change i think back in like 2018 or something I think we slightly adjusted the price and, my God, like, never again. <laughs> it was Thousands just, like, of just, like, decided to personally email me and it's just, like, I'm, like, what was the benefit apart from, like, people <laughs> wanting to kill me and my firstborn child? Like, so, yeah, it definitely, when you have a large group of users that are relying on your product and you shift pricing, it does scare them because, like, it's, like, a core tool set. I mean, it's, like, if Salesforce tripled their price overnight, everyone's kind of, like, holy shit. <laughs> There's
2: Yeah. So that's my, uh, that's my high value add advice on pricing. Stop worrying about it so much and keep it simple. (laughs) I mean, again, probably uh, probably an easy thing to say for having operated a company where, you know, it seemed to kind of work no matter what we had done. So I I, I I feel like you're right. I
0: think it's the right approach. Just keep it simple because like you said, if you're solving a problem, that traction is going to show up in other areas anyway, like people just wanting to pay you or, or use more of your product and you can figure yeah. it out from there.
1: Exactly. I agree. Keep it simple. And I think finding the willingness to pay, like you said, shown like just do some basic research, like what is a prohibited pricing for a user? Based on your yeah. value, where, where you would just like, no, that's too much. And then just do a bit of research, keep it simple, and then run with it. And if your value is there, multiples of the price, that willingness to pay is always going to be there. I think yeah. that's where, where companies forget. I think where companies that play a lot of with pricing, either is because it's too complex or because the value is not really
2: there or the value mm-hmm.
1: is questionable,
2: right? I mean, sometimes um, what's worth spending a lot of time on, which is what Figma did and what I've seen other companies do, is like you can kind of call pricing packaging, but it's almost just like switching your monetization like model. Like are you going from user to usage? Are you going from a you know a free tier that was capped or paywalled on Number of files to number of users, like or it was vice versa, so, but that type of stuff makes a lot of sense because how are users going through the journey of your tool? But like tweaking it from a dollars and cents perspective to so be like, I think I can drive more. Maybe I can increase conversion five percent if I charge fifteen bucks instead of eighteen bucks. It's like well, increase conversion by like introducing like a better, a, a cooler feature or like improving on a feature, like spent like spending cycles and energy and time on like this like ticky tack like. Dollars and cents game of pricing packaging. I I just don't think yeah. it's
0: worth it. I, look, it's someone who's you know screwed around with the pricing over the years many a time, thinking I was genius. My my <laughs> my learning from it at the end is just don't fuck with your pricing, just don't touch it. <laughs> Who cares? Just move on. Like don't even waste yeah. energy on it. It just doesn't matter. Or make it someone else's problem later on. Yeah, exactly. Because it's just yeah. like it just kills productivity and time. I think you you definitely though have like dumb pricing levers like you know if if like people don't extract value from seats, like charging with seats is just stupid, uh, like you want more of the company using the product right
1: yeah yeah some some companies might get that wrong, like the value metric like what is the thing that people will pay more if you if they need more of it? yeah, well, so I mean, even... here's a
0: real world example, like we literally have a way of tracking activities like like segment events because people were sick of paying for segment when they were just trying to track stuff in their product. And so we built a, like, I think a better version of it and we charge for them, but not that much, but it's stupid to charge for them. Like we shouldn't charge anything because it's like the more people insert those activities, like the, the more value we create. So there's things like that where you're just like, this is just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> yeah. I think it's hard not to get well. caught up. But I'm sure it's hard not to get caught up in that stuff. I can only is, imagine. Like if you were starting a SaaS business today, like what like how would you think about data? Yeah. Like what yeah, what would you what would you tell a startup before like, you know, they're even at a point where they're coming to pitch you, like when they're starting out, what should they be thinking through? To me that's super interesting.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um it's it it's tough to blanket statement it because like it can kind of vary wildly with different different types of monetization models and obviously different, like whether, you know, it's a user-based business, API business, like whatever it may be. But a few things that I would think about is like, like I had mentioned before, like focus on, like have tracking figured out, put yourself in a position to even be able to tell a strong data story. And without knowing what's going on in your tool, like you're kind of screwed, right? So just like, have it figured out. Be able to constantly build. Be able to like as early as possible build that dashboard that shows you signups and like kind of the raw table stake stuff. But also like where's drop off happening, where's usage happening, like what features are being used versus not, how are they being used. Like just focus on tracking. The second is like what I think Jesus has alluded to a little bit, and, and I'm kind of enlightened as I think about it more and more of our time at Figma is just. Finding a way to summarize that data and having that source of truth in these facts tables, call them what you want, but basically like don't have it in its raw form, institute tracking, pull out what you think matters, augment it with, you know, some firmographic stuff, but so it would be clear bit or whatever, and like build a central table of users and customers and companies and logos and teams and whatever your unit is. And make sure that's updated constantly. And that's your source of truth for like anything you'd ever want to know about a user or a customer. And then utilize, and then that will allow you to utilize that for experiments, for optimizations, for improvements, and for your entire go-to-market, especially as you start to institute sales, your entire go-to-market flow. So those those are probably the two that I would say focus on tracking. And some of it goes, I think goes into like, just get a data warehouse as early as possible. So many companies don't, we don't have a warehouse yet. It's like, why not? Like they. They're not expensive in the early days. Like just do it. So those are the two data pieces I'd say. And then the third one, I would say too, if you're, if you are, if you've already launched paid is like focus on how you're tracking ARR. I, I personally, this is maybe a in me too. Like I hate like the, well, we're doing 200K in ARR, 300K in ARR, but like we have 20K in this customer that's not in Stripe. So they're not in this report. And they're, I was kind of leaving this earlier, like I'm come from a finance background. So like I view this as important. So it's probably low in the priority stake, but like, get down to the nitty gritty details of like, what your actual ARR is, so that each you can show me each customer over time and how they've grown. And because if you can't tell me what exactly is happening with each customer, how are you ever going to know what to work on in the product? right? You can't even tell me if retention's a problem or not really. So those are the three I would think about from a data perspective that if I were founding a company or if I was going out for a Series A or, you know, even a C, de- de- kind of depending on the stage of your product and company, like that's the things like I will want to be able to like have this all buttoned up. Um, that's how I think about it.
0: Yeah, I think there's some great tools out there as well, like mogul that allow people to edit those MRR and ARR movements and, and do some editing in there to massage it because there's just no perfect system. I mean, we still struggle with this stuff where, yeah, like something's discounted or changes and you're like, how do we get that out of the, the ledger? Because yeah. it didn't even make sense or a spammer comes in, which
2: happens to us all the time. I think there's a product to be built somewhere in there because everyone has the problem. Yeah. It's, like I said, it was like, it's like a 500 line SQL query that Prevere built that like, If Prevere got hit by a bus at one point, like Figma, like wouldn't know how much ARR they have or like how to figure (laughs) out like how to how to like, like dig into it deeper. Him and I had like this institution. Now I think it's been like rewritten and, and it's I hope owned by the data team. But but at least we were to the at the point where we could go down to the nitty gritty details of every customer. And it's hard to do. It's hard to do. And I think a lot of founders who aren't who are solely product focused like don't really realize how difficult that it it, it, it is to do. It takes investment and time, and it's only going to educate product decisions and go to market decisions for you.
0: Awesome. Well, Sean, uh, thanks so much for doing this. It was the insights have been great. I'm sure everyone will really enjoy listening to this, and uh, hopefully we can get you back on at some point.
2: Yeah, I'd love that. It was uh, it was great to catch up. And uh, Jesus, I hope you're taking care of everyone over there in Figma Land. Miss, I miss are. everyone. And yeah. We miss you too. Thank you, Sean.